welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode two. And on today's programme, I talked to Dr. Adam Prime about his research into dissent and indiscipline in the Indian Army during the Great War. Adam is an independent scholar and trustee of the Western Front Association. He spoke to me from his home in the northwest of England. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your interest in dissent and indiscipline in the Indian Army during the First World War? Thanks, Tom. Um, I am Dr. Adam Prime. I'm an independent researcher. I completed a PhD at the University of Leicester, and that was a study of the officer corps of the Indian Army. Um, whilst a, sign- a significant part of their time in India was spent um, playing polo or cricket, hunting or cooling off in the club, officers did on occasion have to get involved in disciplinary matters, hence the uh, topic for this podcast. Um, so part of my thesis and, of course, the book in the future uh, looks at the causes and consequences of disaffection within the Indian Army and the part that officers played in this, because, of course, not only did they play a part in the disciplinary process, but they could actually be a cause of the, the dissent in the first place and they had to restore order at the end. So why do you think this subject is important? It's important for a number of reasons. Uh, chief for me is that understanding what brought about dissent and indiscipline helps us understand what was important to the average Indian soldier. We um, sadly don't have uh, a plethora of memoirs and letters for the Indian soldier, like we do for the British soldier when we think about, in particular, the First World War. But um, the reasons for dissent and even mutiny help inform us what the sepoy needed, what he wanted, what were his motives. But equally, the British response Um, Remembering all officers in in this period were British, the British response um, helps us understand what the officers understood about their own men, Um, particularly when we think of things like race, um, officers treated different people from different regions of India uh, differently when they responded to dissent in discipline. So can you give us some in in Can you give us some background on what the Indian Army was, its sort of size, purpose, compositions and operations during the Great War? The Indian Army at the outbreak of war numbered around 240,000 men. It was largely used to defend India's borders and for internal security. Indian troops did garrison uh, imperial possessions such as Hong Kong and Singapore. And a small number did cease service in the Sudan and in second South Africa. But by and large, the Indian army was restricted to the subcontinent. It was paid for by India and it was for the defence of India, um, mainly in, in um, the northwest frontier, modern day Pakistan, on the border with Afghanistan, being a particular area of concern. This was a popular posting with officers because it was where they were most likely to see action. Although initially, early on in the war, um, the Indian army was again intended for garrison duty, garrison imperial possessions, such as the Suez Canal in Egypt, freeing up British army troops to head back to the Western Front. However, um, very soon, Indian troops were dispatched to Europe. They also provided the majority of the forces that fought in the Middle East, 
and um, also saw action in Africa and Asia as well. Uh, to do this, it had to grow very rapidly. In 1914 and 15, for example, it recruited uh, around 200,000 men per year. By 1918, 1.5 million men served in the Indian Army during the So what was the nature, extent and incidence of indiscipline and dissent in the Indian Army during the First World War? I'd like to break this down into two types, individual and collective. Individual acts of indiscipline and dissent included self-mutilation and desertion, and in at least one case, murder. For example, as troops of the 10th and 11th Indian Divisions prepared um, the banks of the Suez Canal for an Ottoman attack. Being so close to the Ottomans inspired some troops to desert across the Sinai to join their fellow Muslims. The first instance of this um, occurred early in um, 1914. None of the deserters were caught. However, when this happened again in December 1914, uh, three of the four were caught by a cavalry patrol and sentenced to death. And um, the other act, uh, individual act I'd like to talk about is self-mutilation. And this occurred quite heavily on the Western Front. In fact, between October and early November 1914, 1,848 cases of wounds to the left hand were treated in Indian Army Hospital. Um, and a lot of these were from the worst affected um, battalions on the front. So we're talking the 15th Sikhs, we're talking the 47th Sikhs. 57 rifles, for instance. Uh, often it was the palm, and the entry wound on, in these instances were recorded at being around two and a half inches in diameter, whilst the exit wound was around three and a half inches. In all likelihood, a lot of these cases were accidental. Um, it's difficult to identify which were and which weren't. But of course, this is a particularly high number. One thing that was missing, interestingly, was there was no blackening uh, or staining of the wound by powder. Nevertheless, it was a real cause for concern for Sir James Wilcox, who was the commander of the Indian Corps on the Western Front, and the uh, authorities more generally. Wilcox convened a court-martial, and two sepoys accused of self-mutilation were sentenced to death by firing squad. A further 14 sepoys were then sentenced to um, transportation. Uh, one of the major um, responses, though, from Wilcox was not to punish the troops, but introduce a new rule whereby lightly wounded sepoys had to return to the line once they were past fit, and clearing hospitals were established near to the front where injuries could be assessed. If the assessor, usually commanding officer, was satisfied that the wounds were accidental, an Indian soldier um, was treated as an ordinary casualty and they were patched up and sent back to the front. By doing this, uh, in comparison to in India, where troops were actually returned home if they were injured. By doing this, it stemmed these cases of uh, self-mutilation. Although uh, at the time, it was obviously believed that the, the, um, the punishment was doled out by Wilcox discouraged the acts instead. If we think more of um, collective acts of insubordination, there are a couple of examples. And the first comes from the 130th Baluches, um, when embarking in Lahore, the second in command, a Major Anderson, was attacked and, and uh, stabbed to death by a sepoy named Mamakhan Khan. Mamakhan was a Masood um, from the northwest frontier. And what happened previously was the um, a Waziri sepoy had been promoted 
And that caused offence among the Masuds. So Mama Khan took it upon himself to exact revenge by attacking and killing Anderson, who incidentally had had nothing to do with the promotion. This saw the 130th moved to um, Burma, whilst further investigations were uh, carried out. Mama Khan himself was executed for murder. However, whilst they were uh, stationed in Burma, rumours began to spread that the 130th would be sent to the Middle East. Three Pathan companies then mutinied, refusing to embark, refusing to fight their fellow Muslims. They were all detained and arrested, and the 130th actually did then embark for East Africa instead. The Pathans that were detained um, were transported overseas and detained for the rest of the war rather than send um, religiously charged troops back to the northwest frontier from which they came. However, the most famous case of um, collective mutiny comes from Singapore in 1915, when on the 15th of February, at the Singapore Naval Base, the 5th Native Light Infantry revolted. Ironically, the 5th Native Light Infantry were known as the Loyal 5th, as they hadn't joined the Great Rebellion occurred in Bengal in 1857. On the 15th of February, um, the uh, largely Chinese city of Singapore was celebrating New Year, and this was why um, the date was chosen. Around half of the 5th, 850 men rebelled and were divided into three groups. The first group headed to the nearby POW camp and released the crew of the SMS Emden. A second group headed to central Singapore. And a third group headed to the barracks of the Malay State's guides and attempted to persuade them to join the revolt. Uh, and this actually failed and the 5th didn't get any local support. But the mutineers shot any Europeans on sight. Women and children were hastily evacuated onto boats in the harbour. And at the Singapore jail, the families of the European wardens were locked into cells for their own safety. In all, the revolt lasted 10 days. The reason it lasted so long was because the 5th were the only regular army units in Singapore, and indeed the entirety of Malaya. The Malay state's guides were poorly trained and equipped, and volunteer Chinese forces were off duty owing to it being New Year. Martial law was declared in Singapore and eventually the rebellion was suppressed by an assortment of army reinforcements and sailors from nearby vessels, including Russian and Japanese seamen. The first British Indian reinforcements didn't reach Singapore from Burma until the revolt was almost completely extinguished. So how did the British imperial authorities and sort of military commanders of the Indian army explain these incidents? Uh, at the time, much emphasis was, of course, put on religion. The Ottoman Sultan Mehmet V had declared a jihad against the British when the Ottoman Empire joined the war. And in the cases of desertions, such as the, uh, those in Egypt, it was, of course, a reasonable assumption to reach. Similarly, in the case of 130th, the lack of will to fight against the Ottomans induced the men to mutiny. Upon identifying this, the mutineers were detained, as I said, and then um, the remainder sent off to fight in East Africa. Interestingly, the 130th were initially bound for Persia, but this was discussed and dropped due to really, uh, fears around religion in the first place. If we think about uh, Singapore and the mutiny there, religion, strangely, was actually only considered as a secondary cause. The main cause in Singapore was a, a lack of leadership from their officer, and in particular, the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Martin. Uh, the official inquiry uh, said that Martin was opposed by uh, a clique of officers who had been with the regiment for longer than him. The sepoys had got to know of this division 
and they played upon it, leading to a lack of discipline. This then allowed religious ag agitators to become involved in Singapore. And how much um, of these sort of explanations that, that various uh, commanders put forward for uh, incidents uh, which happened under their watch were explained by uh, sort of colonial perceptions of race, obviously that we might uh, consider racist today, uh, for instance, their idea of martial races. And I'm um, answering that, I wonder if you could just start with telling us what martial races were in the context of the uh, British um, colonial uh, administration in India. Martial races were the the peoples of India deemed by the British to be the most warlike, uh, to have the best fighting spirit. By 1914, these predominantly came from the northwest frontier. They came from uh, the Punjab, Sikhs from the Punjab, and um, the United Provinces as well. Uh, and this is, uh, martial race is something that has sort of passed on generation to generation, but it's also very fluid. For instance, Bengalis for a long period were treated as martial, yet um, their poor showing in the Third Anglo-Burmese War led Bengalis to fall out of fashion. Races from southern India, particularly those belonging to the Madras army, were deemed to be non-martial as well, largely because southern Indian regiments didn't see as much action. The action, as I said earlier, was all on the northwest frontier. It was against the Afghans on several occasions. It had been the northern armies of Bengal that had expanded in, in the mid-19th century with the Sikh wars as well, for instance. Um, if we think about how uh, contemporary racist views coloured um, the administrators, well, the answer is somewhat yes, they were. And I think if we think about self-mutilation on the Western Front, for instance, officer casualties were high. And the Indian troops were under machine gun fire and artillery fire, the like of which they'd never faced before. It was therefore assumed that uh, it was this shock of facing such industrial warfare that encouraged men to self-mutilate, especially if they lacked officers, as the contemporary British view stemming from the 19th century infantilised the, the Indian soldier, treating them as, as children, essentially, and the officers as a father figure. Once this father was taken away, Indian, it was said that Indians faltered. Um, this Victorian view obviously prevailed through to 1914. Uh, if we are considering martial race, it's complicated, for, um, especially because some of the races that we've mentioned, those from the Northwest frontier in particular, they are seen as the most warlike, but they're also some of the, the most um, religiously charged. And that's why just simply rumour alone is enough to make the 130th mutiny and refuse to go to war. Did you find in your research um, into some of these incidents of dissent and indiscipline that there were sort of local factors such as political motivations, um, poor leadership, which you've touched on uh, already, but and also issues with pay and working conditions? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so as I've already said, um, in the case of the 5th Native Light Infantry, at the time, Colonel Martin and his lack of control, shall we say, particularly his lack of control of his off the officers underneath him, was blamed for the Singapore mutiny. However, um, the Garda Party, and Garda is a, a word, an Urdu word that means revolutionary, the Garda Party was very active in Singapore. It was active in Singapore because it had actually been expelled from India. Um, but Garda activists uh, were able to infiltrate the fifth, and this is because Martin had lack of control over his, his regiment. So Garda activists... Um, were able to spread their message against a local shop owner 
and a local Muslim holy man were both Garda activists and gave anti-British talks to the men of the fifth. And even a number of the Indian NCOs gave similar lectures on how Germany would win the war in Europe. There's even one case of a, an Indian officer drawing a map of Europe uh, on the floor and showing the troops how the Germans advanced and would win. None of this would possible had it not been for this lack of leadership from Martin. It would be easy to think about the conditions, but generally Indian troops accepted privations as part of their job. Um, these are largely professional soldiers. The only uh, exception to this, I would say, is the siege of Kut Alamara, where troops refused to eat horse flesh. It, it was the case, I would argue, in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia, that the siege of Kut was the final straw. Um, these men had marched through Mesopotamia. After defeat at Tessaphon, their injured and, and, and dead weren't taken care of very well at all. In fact, as, as um, they were garrisoned in, they could see wounded and dying men left by the river, uh, the banks of the Tigris. There's a lot going on in, in court whereby um, morale's really low anyway. I think Townsend himself not be a great commander, wandering around promising that um, siege will be broken soon and every day it wasn't, you know, eroded morale a little bit more. All this put together then sees them asked to eat horse flesh and they refuse. It's almost the straw that breaks the camel's back. Whereas on the Western Front, where morale's much higher, where there's, you know, a lot a lot is made for the sepoys, they're still allowed to play their uh, games, sports, um, there's a lot of religious observation on the Western Front, but when it's required, troops will eat um, foods and meat in particular that they wouldn't ordinarily eat because the alternative is to not be able to do their duty, not to be able to serve as soldiers. And that is their, their primary reason for being there in the first place. Like I say, professional soldiers are most, for the most part, um, keen to do the job. Um, in terms of cut, it's just one step too far to... Uh, in terms of sort of the local conditions, I suppose, not so much pay, but the conditions, certainly, it, it's just too much. And when asked to eat horse flesh, they refuse. Interestingly, Townsend was not keen to insist or order they eat the horse flesh because he feared the spectre of 1857. Um, and for anyone who's not aware, in 1857, a large part of the Bengal army rebelled. Um, it started as a military mutiny, became a, a more large-scale rebellion which was a real threat to British India and actually ended the East India Company. Townsend, as, as most officers at the time, were rather fearful of this uh, and the sort of the spectre of mutiny. And therefore, he was unwilling to order the eating of horse flesh. And what punishments did um, people who were, or soldiers who were convicted by court-martial receive? And were, were, were they convicted at a higher rate um, when compared maybe with a similar group of European or British soldiers? And were the punishments generally harsher against, say, uh, Indian soldiers than they would have been against their British or uh, South African or Canadian contemporaries? Um, I wouldn't say they were harsher. Uh, I would say they are probably equally as severe. One thing that is worth pointing out regards to the Indian Army is punishments are very varied. For instance, flogging remained in the Indian Army and wasn't replaced with field punishment number one until 1920, uh, but it was rarely used. Uh, incidentally, that was the main argument for its retention. Officers and, and commanders in the Indian Army argued that flogging wasn't used very often, but it was a, the threat of flogging was what, you know, 
made it a valuable weapon and therefore it should be retained. When we talked about self-mutilation, two soldiers were executed for desertion. That's something we're, we're rather familiar with in terms of the British army on the Western Front. In the case of the 130th in Burma, Mama, Mama Khan Khan, the murderer, he was obviously sentenced to death. The other mutineers got transportation. They were transported to either Malacca or the Andaman Islands. Singapore and the mutiny there is where it differs. There was 202 men were tried, all but one found guilty. 41 were hung or shot. The rest transported for periods between six weeks and life. And the reason I think that this is perhaps a more severe or more harsh punishment is because Singapore is a direct challenge to British rule. It's a real concern that the only regular army unit in Singapore has essentially ran amok, um, shot and killed numerous Europeans, attempted to incite a much wider mutiny which which failed. But this this direct challenge is what mean, uh, sees 41 men um, executed. But I would say no, um, it's, a, it's a case that similar punishments are doled out for similar punishments that you would expect in the British Army, aside from the fact the Indian Army can still use flogging. Turning to the Second World War, how does the level of dissent and, in, and ill discipline compare with the, the Indian Army during the First World War? Um, what is interesting is that I think in both conflicts, the Indian Army proved to be a largely loyal and efficient fighting force. Even at the height of the Quit Indian uh, riots in the summer of 1942, recruitment to the Indian Army remained consistent. And in fact, 200,000 men joined the Indian Army in July and August of 42, um, suggesting that despite there's a lot of um, nationalist riots, um, considerable political movements, the army still, and, and the cause, sort of the British cause and the imperial cause, is still regarded as important and it still draws men in. Yes, um, if we're comparing the two world wars, I don't, I would argue there's not a great deal of difference um, in terms of sort of these collective and singular actions. One, one example would be, though, the, um, the Central Indian Horse, where 108 Sikh troops refused to embark for service overseas. They were from the Punjab and they had concerns around the Muslim League's demands for the region to be included in any future Pakistan. Stiff sentences were handed out. I think this is perhaps a difference between the two, the two wars. Um, of 108 men that refused to embark, 16 were executed, despite the fact there was no overt action. They simply sat down and refused to embark. But this was designed, I think, to act as a, an example to others and a deterrent during the Second World War, when I think nationalism is considerably stronger. Bear in mind that after the First World War, um, India perhaps didn't get the concessions it expected having played such a large part in defeating Germany and uh, Austria and the Ottomans. And this, this then helps sort of the build of nationalism through the 20s and 30s. I suppose the biggest difference for the Second World War is the Indian National Army. Initially, um, the Indian Legion was formed, and this was formed out of Indian prisoners of war from North Africa. The Indian Legion didn't see action, but it did garrison parts of um, Northern Europe, and they were taken, uh, most of the Indian Legion were taken prisoner as the Allies reconquered Northern Europe. Then we get the Indian National Army, which is formed by Captain Mohan Singh. 
from prisoners of war um, taken in the disastrous Malay campaign in the fall of Singapore in February 1942. Around 45,000 men agree to join the Indian National Army, which is backed by Japan and intended to be used to invade India. Subhash Chandra Bose then reorganizes and reinvigorates the Indian National Army and starts to also recruit Indian ex expatriates, as well as the POWs, and swelling the number to over 50,000. And this does serve with the Japanese as they invade northern India, including battles such as Imphal. So whilst there's no great difference in, in sort of these around local conditions, such as commanders, there's not a great deal of difference uh, around conditions, pay, etc. But this, this huge sort of, the tide of nationalism is, is changed in India. And I think the Indian National Army in particular highlights this. And that is the big difference between the two conflicts. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work and the Indian Army? So um, I have nothing really to offer on this. It's still a working project. I just like coming to talk to you, Tom. However, uh, I do have a couple of chapters out there in the wilderness. Uh, I've got a chapter in a book called The Indian Army in the First World War, New Perspectives, which discusses the Indian defence of the Suez Canal in 1914 and 15. And then I've got a chapter on the officer corps of the Indian Army, which is in a book called Redcoats to Tommies, edited by Kevin Lynch and Matthew Lord which came out um, last year now. But hopefully, if everyone keeps an eye out, there will be more from me in the future. Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom.